My name is Kaylin, and I recently moved here from New York City. I've been a part of Midtown since August, and today as we continue to observe Advent, I'm going to read a few verses from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whose favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what has been told to them about this child. And all who heard were amazed by what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up those things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given before he was conceived. Thanks, Kaylin. Good morning, Midtown. My name is Jamie. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here. Uh, It's the first time I've been able to be back teaching since our our second baby boy was born, so I'm really excited to be back with you. We've got tons. Can I just announce that every week and you'll keep clapping? <laughs> uh, pray with me. We've got a ton to do. Father, thanks for uh, your goodness. Thanks for what we just heard from your word that, uh, that you sent your son, uh, that he took on flesh, that, that the God-man came, that we might be redeemed, that he might take on the curse of the law, that we might be set free from that curse, that he became sin, that we might be set free from our sin. Uh, So thank you. Thank you that in your divine economy, uh, you not only demanded the penalty for sin be paid, but you paid it on our behalf, that we get to freely receive it through faith and repentance, that we can be alive to righteousness in Christ Jesus. So thank you for Christ. We ask now during this time that uh, we would do honor to your word, that you would shape us by it, that you would instruct us in it, that uh, we would leave different than as we came, lest we come to your word and leave unchanged. It's in Christ's wonderful name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 15. If you have a copy of God's word, please meet me there. If you don't have a copy, we have those free in the lobby. Feel free to take one. Those are yours. It's our gift. To you, it's a a long passage today, longer than normal, so stick with me. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, the very words of God. Then he said, this is Jesus relating a parable. Then he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was no longer to be, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. These last few weeks of kind of walking through the Advent season, we've pressed pause on First Peter and 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 been walking through this series with that is that is evaluating or reimagining the way that we relate to God, trying to get at the core, sort of the essence that defines the way we interact on a relational basis with God Himself. And so there have been four components that are going to be unpacked over this, and Jake's given an overview, and then last week talked about the over and under idea of how we relate to God. So, so when, we, when, we, when we boil it down, if we would define how we actually, on a minute-by-minute relational way, interact with God himself, what would we say? This series is supposed to help maybe unearth some of the unhealth in the way that we think and the way that we relate and the way that we interact with God. So last week was living life over God and under God. And this week we're looking at two more components. that We're looking at uh, life from God and life for God. Okay, so concisely put, and then we'll walk through this passage and see where both of them show up, that, that from God is the life that says this, that God is as valuable as he is beneficial to me. So, so in the way that God gives me what I want from him, how I want it from him, when I want it from him, if those things are true of God, then God's valuable to me. That it's all about what can we get from God that in, in, in essence, God exists to help us achieve everything we want to achieve, fulfill all our desires that we want to desire, all of our goals, that everything revolves around what we want and what we can get. That is a life that is a relationship that is defined by getting from God. It is taking God and all His holiness and benevolence and wonder and love and mercy and justice and bowling Him down to a cosmic genie, a divine butler. He exists to fulfill your beck and call. 
one of the hazards of this way of relating to God is this relationship with God actually never asks us to change. None of our desires are disrupted. None of our plans are disrupted. In fact, if we took this way of thinking and made it a universe and peeled back every single layer of it, at the center of that universe would be us. It is everything revolving around us, including God himself. That's life from God. Now, on the other end of that spectrum is life for God, and that is the life that defines its meaning and value by what it does, chiefly by what it does for God. So whatever religious acts you might implore from scripture reading to prayer to evangelism to discipleship to charity to kindness to whatever it may be that you're doing and doing and doing and the more you do, the more value you feel or or the more you do, the more you feel like God loves you or you feel worthy, that that is life for God. I'm going to do these things for God and if I do them, God owes me. So it is a life that actually put God puts God into your debt. It is, God, if I do A, B, and C, you are obligated to do X, Y, and Z. It is completely and totally transactional. The danger of this relating to God is it turns everything, including God himself, into a commodity, into an economic exchange. The currency of that commodity is my obedience. I do what I'm supposed to do, then God will pay me what I should be paid. That's life, God, that's life from God, life for God. And we're going to see both of those show up in our passage. And then we're going to end our time by actually looking at what this passage has to say about God himself. For this whole series is oriented and calibrated towards us wanting to be with God for who God is. Not because of what he can do for us or what we can get from him. But I highly doubt we want to be with God unless we really understand how much God wants to be with us. And this passage gives us a startling, startling picture of the God that actually wants to be with us. So that will be the task ahead of us. Look at it with me. We'll see life from God first in the youngest son. Luke 15, verse 11. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, now watch this, father, the father is, is God in this parable. Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. So, so give me everything that I want. I want all I can get from you. And notice, as soon as he gets all that he can get from the Father, who stands for God in the story, he leaves, which is fitting. If we live life just to get things from God, actually being near to God is of no value to me, of no value to you. So much so that not only does it strain relationship, it actually makes relationship impossible. That's why the youngest son leaves. There's no need or desire for relationship with God. He's gotten what he wanted from God, and he's gone. He's gone. So he gets these gifts. He gets this wealth. He goes out, and the passage says, squanders it, spent everything. Verse 14, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. A good way of understanding that is he finally recognized that he had had need all along. Okay, look, and there's a bit of a, a warning here. Okay, so if we're living life in this posture, 
from God, from God, from God. God, you exist to give me everything that I want. God actually, in his grace, may give you everything that you think you want so that you learn just how empty it makes you feel. Because it's only in getting of what you think will fulfill you and learning that it's empty that there's a chance you may turn back to God himself. That's the younger son in the story. Life from God, from God, from God. You exist. You're only as valuable to me as what I can get from you. And here's what he learns. All these things that he got from God that he thought was the meaning and essence of life. So let me get things from you, God, but I don't actually want you. He finally realizes the vanity of that. The futility of that. So he began to realize he was in need. Let's keep going. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods the pig ate, yet no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, which is a phrase of, of when he got clear in his thinking, when he finally paused to realize everything that had happened and really thought about what got him to the place he was in, here's what he said. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will rise. So here's the plan. Right, look, and we've all been there. Live in a season of sin, or you know you haven't been walking with God, haven't been valuing God, treasuring God. We come up with the plan. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to get myself right, and then I'm going to go to God, and God will accept me. So here's his plan. He says, I'll arise and go to my Father, and here's what I'll say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his Father. Okay, so here's the younger son. Give me all that I want. When I have all that I want, I'll actually leave because relationship with you is of no value to me because I believe getting things from you is the essence of life. Goes, learns that every these gifts, these material ways of living uh, that he thought were the essence of life make him empty, realizes his need, wants to go back to the Father. Press pause. Life from God. Let's look at the older son and see life for God. Verse 25. Just so you know, Father takes him back. We're looking at a second. Father takes him back, throws a party. Older son gets mad. Here's the context. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, Your father has come. Or sorry, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he was received back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Doubtful. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, hear the contempt, when this son of yours came has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Here is the other son who has lived his entire life relating to the father by doing things for him. I'm going to obey, obey, obey. And if I just keep doing the right things, God will owe me. Notice here what life for God leads him to. It actually leads him to hating grace. Because life for God is built around your own ability, what you do, your own merit. It defines your worth and value by what you accomplish. So what happens? 
You hate it when grace is extended by those who have accomplished less than you. Right? Because your sins aren't nearly as bad as theirs. They have no business returning to the Father and being received with joy and gladness. In fact, not only have they not done the right things, they've done all the wrong things. And so you hate, hate grace. Because when a life is built upon nothing but merit, unmerited favor is inconceivable. So here the older son, laboring, 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 says, now, hey, wait a second. I've worked hard for you, Father. I know your commands, and I've kept them. Incidentally, life for God can oftentimes inflate your actual ability. Right? He hadn't kept every command. Okay, but he thinks he has, because everything's based on him. His worth and value is in conduct, and to admit that he hasn't been perfect in conduct is not going to happen. Okay, so... He gets to the point where he realizes God isn't transactional. God's relational. Actually, my worth and value isn't dependent on what I do. It's actually dependent on who God is. And he watches the father lavish grace upon grace on the younger son. And it infuriates him. See, the danger in life from God is it turns everything into a commodity. The danger in life for God, it makes you hate grace. Like you wind up hating the very thing that unites you to God. So here we have these two sons. Like one only relates to God because God's valuable when God gives them things. And the other relates to God because he's only valuable when he's doing things. Right? And I'm sure most of us have been in both of these camps at some point. And the reality is, there are elements of both of these camps that are good and right. Right? We get things from God. Good, wonderful, perfect things. That should be celebrated. And we do labor for God. And that is good and right and should be celebrated. The error comes in when these two orientations define the way that we relate to God. There are always going to be components of our relationship with God. But they're not meant to define the core Of how we relate to him. So we have the idea of I'm just going to get, 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 get. God's a cosmic genie, a divine butler. Hey, and if that's how you're living and if that's how I'm living, the scripture calls us to repentance. Because it takes the holy creator, benevolent God of the universe, and makes him your personal butler. Repentance is required out of that. Then on the other end, life for God devalues the work of Jesus on our behalf and elevates our work above his. And repentance is required of that. Because at some level, there's a lack of faith that the work of Jesus is enough. That at some point, it's actually the work of Jesus plus what I do. And in the plus what I do, God owes me. And I'll pause there to say, God doesn't owe us anything. What God owes is to be faithful to who he is and he's always promised to do that and be that he has not written a prescription that guarantees any of us a certain kind of life. Say, so God doesn't pay us based upon our labor and we should say praise God for that because if that was true, that necessarily means he has to punish us for our disobedience. 
But we would proclaim on our behalf, Christ became sin to take that punishment. We don't actually want that component of life for God. Okay, so life from God errs, and it's just about getting things from Him, no relationship. Life for God errs, it's not about, it's about just doing things for Him. It's not about relationship. Neither son wants to be with the Father. Okay, so from God, for God. What I want to spend most of our time looking at is God. Because I think unless we understand the God that wants to be with us, who He is, his character, his grace, we're really probably not going to want to be with him. And all these postures we've been talking about over, under, for, from, they're distance causing. They're distance invoking. They try to distance that relationship in some way, shape, or form and remove the personable nature of it. And we'll see today, God is incredibly, incredibly personal. Look at it with me. Pick up verse, verse 20. He arose, this is the younger son, back in context, younger son coming back to the father. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, now remember the son had a plan, he had a speech. I'm going to go back, as soon as I encounter the father, I'm going to tell him this, and since I'll tell him these things, he'll receive me. The son said to the father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. That the father doesn't let the son make that speech. How about that? Because God doesn't want the son to believe that he's got to clean himself up before God wants to be in relationship with him. So the son shows repentance, which is the proper posture But God cuts them off mid-speech. And here's what happens. Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you want to know what grace is? Grace is when we deserve punishment and God throws a party. Grace is when everything we've done has been to escape God. Just give me what I want. I don't want you. It's rejection, spitting in his face, running from him. And as soon as we turn back, grace is being met with a party, not punishment. God, the Father, sees this Son turn back to him, and he sprints to meet him. No clean yourself up. No get it right. Don't draw out the perfect speech. Not read a certain amount of the scripture. Not share your faith this amount of time. It is a turning in repentance, and the father runs towards his kid. There are a couple uh, components historically that I think add a depth to this story that may be lost otherwise. Some scholars recount that to do what the younger son did in this story was actually a capital offense. To demand your inheritance before your father passed was punishable by death. So there is a thought that in taking all that he has, he actually has to leave. If he doesn't, 
the town, the elders, the leadership will put him to death for that crime. So he takes the possessions and he leaves. So when he comes back, imagine this. Possibly a capital offense. The father sees him and dad is going to sprint to his boy before anybody else can touch him. That's beautiful. But not only that. There's a uh, custom during this time you know, called a ketsatsa. What a ketsatsa would be is, is if this happened. Okay, so a son shamed his family, shamed his father, left. That if the son ever tried to come back home, he was met at the gates of the city. And at the gates, he'd be met by the elders. And he would be met with them and they would hold this jar. Right, so imagine a big clay pot And in the pot would be burnt food, a burnt waste, and ashes. And they would meet him, take the jar, smash it on the ground. And that was was a ceremony to state publicly to this son trying to return home that you are dead to us. Remember the father's words in the story. My son who was dead is alive. So the other thought is, here's the father running to his son saying, nobody's performing that ceremony. Nobody's going to condemn him. There's no more guilt. We're not going to punish him. And the only reason we're not going to punish him is because I'm going to intervene. That's grace. If you doubt how much God actually wants to be with you, Look at the father in the parable of Luke 15. It is the God who runs towards his boy or girl, gender inclusive, and sprints and says, nobody's going to condemn them. Nobody's going to punish them. I'm going to throw a party because my child is home. Because he wants to be with us so much That the second person of the Trinity took on human nature to dwell among us, suffer an excruciating death, to pay the penalty of the law that we might be with God. In every one of these relational postures that we've talked about, over God, under God, from God, for God, Break the heart of God, not because he's getting angry with us, but because we're distancing ourselves from what he wants to do. Let's be with us in relational, communing intimacy. So here's my exhortation, then we'll take communion. I mean, if you're living life from God, right, that God's as valuable to you, as what he can do for you. I should say in the power of the spirit. Exhort you towards repent. Because that is not life. That is not life. And you will find if, if you're with him. Understanding how much he wants to be with you. Then the gifts you do get from him. Will take on a depth that will never be empty. If you're living life for God. If your existence and value when you evaluate yourself, if it all terminates on what you're doing or not doing, let me just exhort you, would you in the power of the Spirit repent of that and say, 
It's not about what I do, but what Jesus did. God came not to watch you destroy yourself in misery by proving your worth through effort. God came so that you would, by faith, receive the work of Jesus and be set free to serve God in joy. And then the things we do for God are about intimacy, not about earning. God wants to be with us. He's proven it in the person of Jesus. This parable says, hey, no punishment. I'm going to throw a party. As soon as we turn in repentance, he's there. He's there. Hey, at, at Midtown every week, we take communion. Communion does, does several things. One aspect of communion is remembering the death of Jesus. The fact that the shadow of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament finds true, pure, final substance in the Passover lamb Jesus of the New Testament. It is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed once for all, no longer having to be repeated year after year after year. But Jesus didn't come as an adult. He wasn't born as a 30-year-old man and then immediately went to the cross. He came as an infant during this time, Advent, meaning coming. Okay, so as we come, we remember his death, the blood shed on our behalf, his body broken for us. But remember that, that he came doing that, that we could be set free to be with him, reconciled to God because of the perfect work of Jesus. So when we come, we take the juice, the blood of Christ spilled on our behalf. We take the bread, his body broken for us, remembering it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we get to be with God. It's through the birth of Jesus that God has infinitely proved he wants to be with us. Logistically, if you come down the middle and go back down the sides, it'll make it run a little more smoothly. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for this time. Thank you that we can remember you who you are and what you've done, that you are a God that that (laughs) runs towards us. Even if we've been living uh, from you, uh, testifying to you that we don't care about you, just what you can give us, God, you run towards us when we come out of that and turn to you in faith and repentance. You're not waiting to punish us. In Zephaniah 3, you want to sing over us and you exult over us in joy. And God, on the same token, when we repent, we turn from, from admitting, hey, God, I've been living life based on my own merit that you owe me because of what I do. And we repent of that, Lord, and say it's not about what we do, but what Jesus did. And we want to, to receive the free gift of Christ and then serve you and enjoy getting to be with you in relationship, not working for you to earn a payment. So God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the taking on of flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection that we might become children of God. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.